You're listening to the Music Marketing Manifesto podcast, where you'll learn how you can use direct-to-fan marketing strategies to grow your fan base and generate income from your music with no record label, radio, airplay, touring, or press. And I'm your host, John Ojaka. All right, John Ojaka here, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Music Marketing Manifesto podcast. I believe we're at episode number 27 now, I think, I hope. I really need to look these things up before we start recording. Um, but I, I think we're at episode number 27. Things have been uh, moving along nicely. Uh, if you listen to this show, then you know we've recently um, undergone a bit of a, a reboot on the podcast. Uh, shows are coming out a lot more frequently. We've changed up the format a bit, and uh, and we're having a good time time. So if you enjoy the show, I definitely want some feedback. I definitely want to hear from you. Um, and and I could use a bit of a favor if you would be so kind as to head on over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to this podcast and leave us a rating and review. Uh, those things, they, they really help. They help attract new listeners and new listeners ensures that there will be new episodes. So if you do that for me, um, I, I'd certainly appreciate it. Uh, today, we're going to be doing something a bit different. So my buddy Scott James, uh, he was on the last two episodes. He was sitting in with me, so I wasn't wasn't quite so uh, lonely sitting there all by myself talking into a microphone. And he's going to be joining us yet again uh, after the quick break that'll be coming up in a minute. But we're going to do something different. We're going to flip the microphone around, so to speak, and he's going to be interviewing me. Uh, this is something that he's been urging me to do for some time. Uh, I know many of you are aware that I'm also re- a recording artist. Uh, I've released albums for Interscope and Warner Brothers and independently. Uh, but that very first deal to Interscope, it was it was a huge deal. And I, and I cringe a little when I say this because um, I don't know these things. But I was told the trade paper certainly said it was at the time anyway, the largest new artist signing in history. I don't know if it's been beaten since I, I actually I'm, I have no no clue. And I don't know if it was the biggest at the time, but it was a massive bidding war deal. Uh, and, and it was a huge event in my life. And, and while I was, I've certainly referenced it, I've never really told that story. And it's kind of a fun one that I think, uh, other musicians might get a bit of a kick out of. So while this show certainly is normally about direct to fan marketing strategies, and you'll, and you'll pick up on some of that in this episode. But we are going to diverge a little bit from that, and, and we're going to kind of get into a bit of bit of story time. <laughs> and I'm just going to kind of, uh, again, Scott's going to basically interview me and, and try to pull that story out so that I can, I don't know, let you guys in on what was quite a ride in, this, in, the, in the music industry. And in a very sort of inadvertent, roundabout kind of way, it's what led to Music Marketing Manifesto, as we'll, we'll ultimately get to. So... That's what we're going to be doing today. I hope you guys dig it. It's again, it's a we're we're diverting from the the normal format, but I think it's going to be a fun one. Um, before we get into that, there is something else that I'm kind of excited to talk to you guys about. So, as you know, I've been teaching musicians how to market their music for um, you know it's it's getting close to a decade now. We're not quite there, but uh, for a long time, it, it's it's the a massive part of my life. I absolutely enjoy this and I've helped thousands of artists uh, grow their fan bases and generate income from their music and, and ultimately turn their careers around. It's incredibly rewarding and, and I get a massive thrill every time I get an email from someone saying they've applied some of my strategies and sold their first album and and you know they're thrilled and I'm thrilled and and it's it's incredibly rewarding. However, there's always been one aspect to what I do that has been 
not qu- quite where I want it. And that's that, that while, while I teach this stuff, I get an email probably once, twice, three times, I don't know, a week from people saying, Hey, uh, I got your course. I love the concepts. I can see how they're going to work, but I don't want to do it. You know, I'm, a, I just want to play music. I have a day job, whatever the case might be. They don't want to actually take on the marketing and that's understandable musicians are you know you're creative people not everyone is interested in in really learning the ins and outs of marketing and business um like 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 i am <laughs> like nerds like me are um so so but um, and people will ask if they can hire me but unfortunately at least historically that answer has always been no you know it's not it's not something that i really offer these campaigns are incredibly time consuming and i will take on one or two clients a year but they tend to come through um, my personal network friends and, and things like that um and so it's just really not been something that i've been able to offer however that has recently changed so i've i've teamed up with uh my new business partner michael Asensius is his name and we've begun an agency now we we quietly put this out there i think i put a little post on facebook some months ago and i mentioned it in my insider circle forums and things like that but i've never sent out an email or run any kind of promotion and we took on our very first uh, stable of clients a few months ago and things are really going well we've built the team and we're having a lot of fun working with these artists and and helping put their campaigns their funnels together and we've hit the point where where it's time to expand you know to get out of that beta stage and take on more clients so i'm basically one announcing that there that i've quietly launched a marketing agency it's called dtfi that's direct to fan international and it is a marketing agency for musicians that specializes in building direct to fan marketing campaigns for musicians so if you're interested in this stuff, if you see how this stuff could work for your career, this approach, selling direct to consumers can work for your career, but you don't have the time or the interest or the skill to put one of these funnels or campaigns together yourself, then I do want to let everyone know that we're now offering that service. So we are going to take on 10 clients. So just 10 clients to get started. Obviously, at some point down the line, we'll take on more. Uh, but we've, we've finally got the team and the bandwidth to take on a few more clients. And if you're interested in this, send an email to john at musicmarketingmanifesto.com. Again, that's john at musicmarketingmanifesto.com. Just mention in the email that you heard about the agency uh, on the podcast and you're interested in learning more. And we'll start a dialogue. We'll, we'll, I'll explain more about it, how much it costs, what we can do, and so forth. We'll get on the phone and we'll see if it's a good fit for you. So, Again, only 10 clients. We're, we're hoping to fill that roster within the next few weeks. So if you are interested, then this is something that uh, I'd recommend you get in touch about soon. And we'll be offering MMM style funnel build outs, album release campaigns, social media campaigns, Facebook advertising campaigns, really anything that you ultimately need, but don't have the time, bandwidth, energy, skill to do yourself. So get in touch. Uh, we're really excited about this. Uh, I think I think you'll be hearing a lot about this in the, in the future. So that is that. Now we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, Scott James is going to be on the line with me. And we're going to talk about uh, my, my little old uh, record deal there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Back in a sec. You're listening to the Music Marketing Manifesto podcast.
right, we are back. Uh, Scott James is on the line. Scott, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, so so what are we doing here? So so you're really the reason that we're doing this. You've been urging me to tell this story for a while. So so I don't know. Get us up to speed. Yeah, I thought this would be fun to talk about uh, your record deal, which. Um, you know, of course, this is something that I think probably most of your listeners know about, uh, you know, some of the, the uh, points about it. But I thought it'd be cool to talk about the the whole story about how you pulled it off. I think it's pretty remarkable and a pretty cool story. So uh, I thought your listeners might enjoy it. All right. Well, I don't know. I've never been on this side of the mic. So where do we start? Well, so uh, I was thinking maybe we could start when you moved to Hollywood. So uh, you were in Seattle for a while, right? And then uh, what was it, like 96 or so when you moved to Hollywood? Uh, something like that. So I'm from Hawaii. I was born and raised in Hawaii, a little town called Waimanalo. And um, I never felt like I fit in, you know, really was intent on making it in the music business. The second I got out of high school, I hopped on a plane and moved to Seattle. This is 1992. Um, I'm 43 now. Um, this is, this is when grunge was dominating the covers of every magazine in the country. Um, Soundgarden when Alice in Chains and Nirvana and everybody had, had recently exploded and I had to go somewhere. And I, I think I changed my mind every few, uh, every few, weeks about where I was going to go that summer before I finally left. And at one point I was moving to Nashville. Another point I was coming to San Francisco and, you know, and then finally, finally I settled on Seattle and I got off the, 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 the plane. I I was like, like a kid from Hawaii. I was, I had no experience with a big city. I did not know where I was going to sleep. Um, when I got there, I think I, <laughs> I intentionally did it a bit hard cause I, I wanted the story, you know, and I, I didn't know anyone there. Um, ended up having a few friends that moved there a few months later, I think, but I, I didn't know a soul when I got off the plane and yeah, ended up staying in the Pioneer Square hotel, which at the time was like, it was horrible. I think it's been completely renovated and it's all nice now, but, uh, if you remember the movie Big, when he's staying in a hotel and there's like people getting shot outside and he's he's crying, you know, Tom Hanks is a 11 year old in a grown up's body and he's like crying because people are screaming and 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 getting shot outside. It was really similar to that experience. <laughs> but I but yeah, I moved to Seattle to um, to try to make it in the music business and had a fantastic experience. I was there for only about three years, but man, if that experience hasn't endured i still have many friends there and it was a major um, point you know a major experience in my life major time in my life and i I made some waves i became i like to think i was a integral air quotes there but integral part of the the seattle scene at the time you know at least i was one of a handful of singer-songwriters that were gigging regularly and making things happen i ended up getting managed by a guy named david minor uh who's who's still quite a name up there in Seattle. Um, and he was with Kelly Curtis management at the time. So I was sort of inadvertently managed by Pearl Jam's management, or at least part of this, you know, affiliated with that company and was right in the center of it all. And, and things were going well, but as many stories start, I met a girl, um, and, uh, she was from Long Beach. And so, uh, we decided to move down to Long Beach and that kind of began a new chapter of life in Los Angeles. That relationship quickly kind of fell apart. I moved from Long Beach up to Los Angeles. This would be 1997. 
Um, so I, I moved, yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think it was, I believe that's right, 1997, and started, started hustling. Um, I, uh, you know, I, there was this thing, so I'm, I'm a singer-songwriter, and I just, I had, I had become that guy who played on rock stages in Seattle, you know, I'd open up for fairly popular rock bands, and, and I, there was this other thing where, especially in LA, I came there, I'd say I was an acoustic singer-songwriter, and people would kind of go like, so what, you're like an open mic guy? And I was like, no, I'm not an open mic guy, I'm an, I'm a, I'm an act, I'm a headlining act, you know? Um, <laughs> And, and I didn't want that asterisk next to my name, that open mic guy. Um, so I really kind of, uh, I didn't, I didn't play a lot, you know, at, at least at first. There was a bit of luck, and I don't know if I'm kind of segueing too quickly here, but there was a bit of luck that came into play. So when I, when I first came to LA, again, I was, I was fresh on the heels of a breakup, pretty confused and lost and 20, I think I was 20, two um and i i ended up you know i just was going out any chance that i could i would go out every single night and pretty quickly i might have even been the first night i was out i bumped into a guy that i had met in seattle he was in a band called the rattled roosters they were from canada his name's rick royale um it quickly became a very good friend one of my best friends uh we moved in together and and he introduced you know i was not a promoter. I was not a marketing minded guy. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. I did. I did have some some DNA in me, I suppose, that was that made me a marketing minded guy. But I was not very outgoing. I was shy. Even as an artist, I, I didn't talk from the stage. You know, I had a sort of Kurt Cobain attitude. I'd look at the floor and say very few words and um, certainly was not the kind of guy that went up to strangers and started conversations. And I think I think desperation and again, a bit of good fortune changed all that. And Rick Royale was really the guy that that helped introduce me to a lot of new concepts. He was a very outgoing guy, and he really worked the sort of Hollywood scene, and and kind of took me under his wing, I suppose. And 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 just through the two of us kind of going out. I see, you know, he was very social and knew everybody. And I just, I guess I picked up a lot of his tricks and, and became, um, a much more outgoing person, broke through some of that shyness and, and learned how to approach strangers and just start conversations and these, these very simple concepts. But we went into a bar one night. It was Goldfingers. Um, it's now gone. It's there in Yucca and Selma. It's now the parlor room. That hasn't changed, right? It's still the parlor room. Still the problem. Yeah. Um, uh, About 300 feet away from me right now. Yeah, yeah. And and so that was Goldfingers at the time. It had just opened, and we were on our one of our many rounds going out. You know, we literally go out like six nights a week, and this new bar had opened, and he said, oh, I, I know the bartender. Let's go check it out. We go in, and the bartender, still a friend, her name's Penny. Um, she was working, and, and this is the first night I had met her, and she bought us a few drinks, and the bar was beautiful. And the manager was there that night, and Rick, again, being the social networker that he was, and being the lead singer of a fairly popular band, um, she had approached him. Both of us were kind of going through, a, I guess, a reboot on our lives. We had both gone through breakups. I think his band was maybe peaking at that time. I, well, I should say um, not peaking, the opposite. It was it, it had peaked, and he was starting to think about maybe doing something else. And she came up and, and said, what's going on? What are you doing? And and somehow insinuated that they were looking for 
um, uh, bands to play. They were going to have a, a residency, so a band every night. And on on a dime, he just kind of fibbed and said he and I were starting a band, or we, or we had started a band. And it, it, I don't remember why he he said it, but we were kind of a, a velvet underground kind of thing. I think he was just playing into the interests of the manager and and we'd be happy to play. <laughs> and she booked us for two weeks uh, from that day. And we had this gig, but no band. So we went home and, uh, and I don't know. I don't even know. If I, I've suddenly I'm telling the story. I don't know. Is this relevant to where we're going? Because this has nothing to do with the record deal just yet. But it did. Foresh- oh, yeah. No, I was going to ask about this if you didn't talk about it. <clears throat> yeah, it is. It does foreshadow everything. Um, but he uh, yeah. So we, we go home and more or less on a piece of paper, we wrote up a script for this band. Now, there was another <laughs> weird little story that kind of played into this where one day around this time, I don't remember if it was before or after, uh, again, this is 1997, I believe. Uh, so I don't know what inspired it, but one day we were going on a double date um, and we decided, I think it was some weird boredom, but we decided we were going to go and sort of drag to sort of you know freak these girls out or just i don't know get a reaction so we put on it was kind of jane's addiction drag but dresses and makeup and hair and and got all crazy and we went uh to meet these girls at what was the spaghetti factory at the time um and of course we walk in and this was shocking to me at the time like i was a <laughs> i was a seattle humble you know, ex-surfery kind of kid grungy kid like wearing i remember going out once wearing a gold tie with sparkles all over it, and at the time that was freaky and crazy to me so me walking into the spaghetti factory with lipstick on and a dress like that just was every bone in my body was trying to jump out of my skin and run away <laughs> and we we sit down quite chuffed with ourselves with these girls and of course they 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 being far um more sophisticated and, and and i don't know sharper than us they they knew exactly what we were trying to do and get a reaction so they gave us no reaction they're just hey guys and they didn't even flinch <laughs> and but the long story short is we for some reason we liked how we looked we thought hey we look kind of cool and this, that experience overlapped with this fib that we had this band. So we thought, you know, let's take that, let's do the drag thing that we did at the spaghetti factory with this velvet underground thing. And the long story short was what emerged was on paper. Remember, there is no band. But we we called ourselves popism, and as in that was taken from the Woody Woody. <laughs> what what am I talking about? <laughs> that guy Woody Allen, great artist. <laughs> the Woody Allen. No, the um, Andy Warhol. There we go. Um, the Andy Warhol book, uh, popism. Uh, so we took that name and we named the band Popism. And whenever you heard our name, it was followed by the greatest fucking band in the world. That was our tagline. <laughs> so it was Popism, the greatest fucking band in the world. But but we were sort of terrible. Like I, I was, we were all singers. Well, Rick was a singer. I was a singer. Uh, uh, Billy Burke, who ended up playing piano, he was a, uh, uh, singer as well. He did play piano, but we all decided, you know, let's just all play instruments we don't know how to play. So I ended up playing drums. Uh, Rick, Rick did play guitar, but he was not a guitar player. 
so to speak, at least at that time. Uh, he played guitar. Uh, one night, a guy was playing piano in the bar. They had a baby grand on, on the stage, and that's probably what also helped tip us in this sort of retro New York Dolls kind of glam direction because a lot of that music had had piano in it and um and there was a guy playing and he was he looked cool and we said hey we're doing this thing you want to be part of it and and he ultimately said sure um he lived right around the corner so he only had to walk 100 yards to show to show up um and we had this this uh, gal um, who lived upstairs from us. She was a, a dominatrix and incredibly interesting and and beautiful. And we we had no idea if she could sing, but we said, "Hey, uh, we're starting this thing. You want to be the singer?" And uh, we had uh, a friend um, who her name was me. She she played uh, bass. She was not particularly great. And it's actually, you know, quite a sad story. She's since passed away from, from what I understand an overdose. She, she had a, uh, I, it sounds like a, a pretty severe drug problem in the end. And that was, that was beginning at this time, um, you know, as the band, uh, while, while the band was still together, but she looked pretty incredible. She was sleeved with tattoos and beautiful and, and play bass. So we had this band and remember, we're wearing feather boas and dragon. This is prior to any kind of glam resurgence. This is 1997. Around 1999, glam kind of had a moment where it kind of came back. And, <clears throat> and I, I kind of think for reasons we can talk about later, I think, I think our little experiment was part of that. Um, the reason for that resurgence, but we, uh, we, we, we were this, outrageous band that looked incredible um but was kind of bad in a lot of senses you know the 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 singer had never sung before the the we all played instruments we didn't know how to play and much like the velvet underground it it, it was bad but very artistic and but so bold you know the the fundamental experiment was could we by simply saying that we were the greatest fucking band in the world could we kind of convince people that we were and if we looked the part would we would we ultimately be the part and we we really got the crowd involved we had a host who sort of pretended to be more like the promoter he'd be the MC and he'd walk around with a Polaroid camera very Hollywood uh, I was gonna say Woody Allen again uh, Woody uh, Andy Warhol um, I'm mixing those letters up uh, but very a la Andy Warhol he'd Polaroid pictures of people who looked great. So there was a little incentive. You wanted to look great enough to get your picture taken. But it was an experiment where I, I was walking around, you know, feather or, or leopard skin suits and red boas and lipstick. And I was drinking water uh, in a in a martini glass with a water filled vodka bottle in hand. And I'd get up on the bar and pretend to be wasted. And 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 what would happen is before you know I was completely acting but before you know it there were five other people up on the bar dancing and it became this really great party and it became one of the more popular nights in town certainly the most popular night that the bar had and you know it was a small bar so didn't take many people to pack it but you know 100 150 people would come out every Tuesday night and and we we did really well for six months and we decided to eventually the band there were a lot of egos at play and things were kind of they hit a we need to take it to the next level or implode um we had we had hit that point and we decided to 
to end our residency and start performing at other venues. And we did a few shows, but ultimately the band did kind of implode and, and basically fell apart. And at that time, and I had always been a solo artist, obviously, but I had taken a break from that during this time. That led to me returning to the, the, when the band finally split, I, I began focusing again on my solo act thing. But what the lasting impact of this was that because of the success of that night, I had met many other promoters in town and I got approached by the Dragonfly to do a Friday night, uh, there and, uh, another Monday at Goldfingers. And that led to a couple of years of being a club promoter. I ended up throwing an after hours club which you know may not have been legal um but but we 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 I had a a partner in that and that that was a whole crazy experience unto itself but I was absolutely piss poor you know I was I would let I would let almost anyone who asked on the guest list and I wasn't charging much to begin with but my whole goal and again I didn't set out going if only I could uh become a successful promoter and stack up uh, favors, then then I'll be able to cash this in in some way. I didn't start out that way, but quickly as I started to amass a certain popularity and a huge phone book full of, of numbers, I started to realize that exactly that was happening. I was, I was getting my roots into the city. I was engaging with the city and making these relationships. And I had about a thousand phone numbers handwritten into my phone book at the time. And I had a certain power, you know, I had a lot of favors coming my way. And when I needed to fill a room, I could do that. I could call all those numbers and, and, and I didn't make much money. I'd put everybody on the guest list. I would make my money in, in basically the spillover. So I, sometimes I put 400 people on the guest list and 50 extra people would come for free with their friends and, and people walking by and seeing that something was, was going on. And I'd make, you know, 500 bucks off of those 50 people, um, while it might have looked like I was making 12,000 from, from the outside. Most of those people were free, but I was, I was creating this, this momentum that, as I'm sure we'll talk about, really overshadows what ultimately I ended up doing with online marketing many years later. But that got me to a place where, again, I had built a lot, you know, I had, I had built a lot of relationships. I was, I was primed and ready. I got myself a manager. I got myself a lawyer. I got myself a producer. I had, uh, my manager kicked in a couple of thousand dollars and we got two radio ready songs and we were ready to sort of pull the trigger and ultimately start shopping and make something happen. So I'll pause there to let you get a question. In. Um, am I leaving anything out from that story so far? I don't think so. Nothing that I was going to ask you about. Okay. Um, Does it all make so sense? I guess, yes. Yeah, it's all making sense. Um, so uh, I guess the next thing I'll ask you about is, um, so you, you had that single on the air, which led up to the record deal. But uh, let's maybe talk about what well, led up to that. Like, Well, yeah, no, I don't um, think I mentioned. You know that I had a, a single that ended up getting on there, but I don't think I've mentioned that in the story so far. Uh, oh, no, okay, you're right. I did mention the single, but not that it got on there. So let's let's uh, lead up to that. So, so all this time, you know, I, again, I, I first moved, I'm 20. Now at this point, I'm 24, you know, at, the, at this stage in the story. I had been at this since I was 18, and I got a lot of demo deals. I got a demo deal... When when I was in Seattle with um, Epic Records, 
uh, with Pearl Jam's A&R rep, and then nothing happened. And at the time, I, I, you know, the first few times a manager tells you that someone from Geffen, you know, requested your tape, it's so exciting. You think it's about to happen, and then nothing comes of it, and they never call back. And then you, and then it happens again, and then again, and then again, and then I finally get, um, Epic Records wants to give me $5,000, and I'm thinking, oh my God, I, I, this is it. I'm going to get signed. And then, you know, you turn in the rec- the demos and nothing happens and the calls never come. And, and then I got another demo deal with uh, Paradigm Records, uh, which was an indie at the time, um, another $5,000 to record some music. This is when I was in Long Beach. And again, nothing came of, uh, came from it. Um, then when I, when I, again, I had mentioned how I amassed this team, David Christensen was my manager, still, still a good friend and probably the person who for, for all the hard times I have given him both personally and, and in in some stories I've told, he's really the guy who's given more of a crap about me than probably any, or at least professionally than anybody else, uh, in, in my life. Like he really, really worked hard for me and, and believed in what I was doing and, and, you know, will always hold a very, um, important place in my heart because of our, our experiences back then for good and for bad. But, you know, he, he was working hard and he had relationships and he was getting those, those, they were cassettes at the time, at least initially. Um, and he was getting those, those tapes off in, into people's, uh, or, onto people's desks and they were listening to it and he was, we were getting rejected. We got rejected over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, I don't know. I never counted them up, but there would have easily been 20 record labels that, that passed. Um, virtually everyone uh, had passed at, at some point or another. Um, and, a, and an interesting part, and I tell this stuff because I think musicians need to hear this, uh, be, because it, it, We've all had versions of this happen. Um, but I had written a song way back in Seattle called, it was called Bisexual Chick. And it was sort of a, a funny novelty take on hipster women. Um, and I played it on, um, uh, at least from my small town perspective at the time. And I had played it. I had written it. I was really excited about it. It was kind of, this is prior to Beck, but it was kind of a Beck-ish thing where it was rap with folk with retro qualities. Um, but, uh, I wrote it. I had a live on air interview that morning, uh, played it for my, he was my harmonica player at the time, um, and played it for him. He was going to be on the, on the radio with me and said, Hey, should I play this? I, I think this is great. And he said, yeah, definitely. So I played it. The radio station got hate calls. Like, like, like <laughs> they absolutely hate it. Remember, you know, it's a, I mean, it was, it was a, bit of a piss take on hipster women and this is a very liberal town and 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 people did not like it my manager um who you know i love um but he told me never play that song ever again like don't play that song it's terrible and it's offensive um and you know i'm i'm all sensitive to being offensive i didn't think it was i thought it was just funny and i'm not attacking bisexuality i was attacking hipsters um, so anyway, but I was totally wounded, you know, I was 18 or 19 years old. I was, oh my God, I don't, I don't want to piss people off. I, and, and I buried the song and years later I'm in Los Angeles and I'm looking for stuff to record. I'm working with Dave and, and, and we're going to, we're going to go in the studio and I pop out the song for my bass player, a guy named Clark Suter. And, and I play it for him. And he's like, dude, you got to play that song. That's great. And I play it for my manager and he agrees. So we record it. 
And remember, simultaneously, we're getting passed on by everyone. That song ends up, it comes out great. It's radio ready. He, we still get another round of passes from that very same recording. Um, and, but then one day Glenn Ballard, now Glenn Ballard, very famous producer, Alanis Morissette and a million other people, um, he's written a movie and he's putting out this movie and he's putting the soundtrack together. Here's this song. He's, he's got a, uh, a label through capital called Java records. Um, and he hears it and he wants to do, he wants to use the song as a single on that soundtrack. And, and of course I'm ecstatic, you know, the idea of working with Glenn Ballard and yes, absolutely. He can do that. Um, but they didn't want to sign me just yet. So another demo deal. And, and I can remember that it was Christmas. I was back home in Hawaii. I'm 24. And at the time it didn't, you know, I had turned in the demo and no offer of a record deal had come about. And I remember being nearly in tears, just kind of talking to my mom going, I don't know what to do. I can't, I can, can, everyone is giving me these demo deals, but I can't get anyone to sign the check. And again, I'm 24. I'm starting to stress out a little bit. Like I, you know, I don't want to be broke my entire life. And, and while I still got time, I'm starting to see the writing on the wall that if I can't make something happen sooner or later, that this life that I dreamed of may not happen. Um, and, and I remember being really at my lowest that, that Christmas. Um, and then when I came back, everything sort of took off. Now I had, I had, I had, again, I had a demo deal with capital. They had not been extending any offers to sign me, but I, when we were in the studio doing, so, uh, again, the song was going to be the single for, uh, Glenn Ballard's soundtrack. The movie was a movie called Clubland. It didn't end up doing anything. Um, the movie, the single wasn't scheduled to drop for some time. I'm in the studio doing these demos for Capitol. And all of a sudden we get a phone call saying, turn on the radio, you're on the radio. And, uh, we turn it on and it's K-Rock. I don't even, I don't listen to radio anymore. It's K-Rock still the world's biggest alternative rock station. I don't know. was at the time. Um, and it's K-Rock and the DJ comes on afterwards and he's like, you know, introduces the song. It's new. And he says, that's not the last time you're going to hear that song. Not by a damn sight. And we're just jumping up and down because we know things are about to change. Um, when you get a song on the radio in any kind of rotation on a big station and you have no record deal, the phones are going to just start ringing. And that's, that's exactly what happened. And virtually overnight, I went from not being able to get arrested, you know, no getting passed on by everybody in town to having every single record label imaginable calling. I think in the end, maybe I'm getting too ahead of myself, but we got something like eight offers from, from the majors. Many labels didn't make offers just because they knew they couldn't afford it. I got flown to New York twice in a, in a, uh, two week period during this bidding war. Um, meeting with, you know, the heads of all the labels, heroes, Clive Davis offered me a deal. Um, Jimmy Iovine, uh, who was, who ultimately signed me and was my, my A&R rep over there. 
um, at, at least initially, uh, you know, he took me to see the stones. I'm having lunch at his house. And I remember just before all this kind of calling my lawyer going, what's going on? You know, I read, I read all this rock and roll, you know, these magazines. I, I remember Beck talking about how David Geffen took him to his house and, and, you know, he got uh, this huge bidding war. And I remember my lawyer saying, look, John, I don't think that's going to happen for you. Those stories are usually not true. They're usually exaggerated. Um, and that's not really how it happens, but we'll, we'll make, we'll get a deal somehow, you know, this, this will happen, but it, you know, I wouldn't expect something like that. That just doesn't really happen. And here I was, and it was literally happening. It was the American dream scenario. I was sitting by the swimming pool with not David Geffen, but Jimmy Ivey. Um, and, and again, going to see the stones and going down to Palm Springs to hang out with them and, and doing, uh, having a similar experience with many label heads. I remember, I don't know, I guess I'll leave certain names out of it just cause I don't, I don't want to piss anybody off, but the head of Epic at the time who I really liked, um, and it was very close to, I almost signed with them. Um, uh, I was in the studio doing demos before all of this had happened. And my producer left me a, uh, uh, Chris, he was one of my producers. I had two producers, Nick and Chris, Nick Jodois and, 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 um, Chris Johnson and Chris left a joke message on my machine saying, you know, speaking in a woman's voice saying, hi, uh, John, this is what well, was Polly Anthony at the time. So I guess I just said her name, but is this is Polly Anthony. I, I love you. Can I please sign you? You know, just some kind of a record deal. Like I'm um, some kind of a message like that, just being silly. I, I saved it because it was funny. Two weeks later, I have a real message from Polly Anthony on my phone <laughs> saying in much more reasonable terms how, you know, she felt the same way. And she she really thought I was special and wanted to sign me and all this kind of. And it was just, and I remember playing them back to back at that time because they were both still saved on my machine. And it was just such a night and day shift from this is an impossible thing it's so impossible that that it's an obvious joke the concept that that this powerful person would call you and and say something nice to it became a reality and and i mean i was gift baskets arriving on my doorstep and it was it was everything that one could ever dream of happening frankly and then in in the end I ended up landing a deal for what was it? Jeez, I'm actually having to struggle to remember what it was. So I got three albums firm, um, firm meaning they can't, uh, you know, even if they want to drop you, they still have to pay you, at least legally speaking, they still have to pay you that money. Um, so excluding marketing budgets and all that kind of stuff, which would obviously fluff up the numbers, but just advance, just here's your money, give us a record in return and you get to keep whatever you don't spend on that record. It was something like 750,000 on the first record. And then I got 500,000 on the second and third record, if I'm not mistaken, um, with bumps based on potential sales. And simultaneously, I landed a publishing deal with Famous Music, um, who has now been acquired by Sony. Um, and it was something very similar. I think it was 750 and 750. But if I didn't sell at least 100,000, then the second album was 500. And all of this was was firm. Um, they had, you know, they had to pay it. Um, uh, publishing had to pay it so long as the second album came out on a major. And you know, I don't, I don't know. 
if I'm blowing past some of the story here, there's things you want to ask me about, but it was, you know, it was a really hard decision. Um, and it was all happening while the song was getting spun on the radio. And there was this fear of if we, you know, if, what if it stops? What, you know, what if the radio station stopped playing it? And, and in the end, that did start to happen. It did start to dwindle down because there was no record there to follow, to follow it up. And, <clears throat> The, the, uh, you know, the, again, the, the deal was nuclear. I had offers from eight majors on the table. Many more didn't make offers just because they, you know, couldn't afford it in their words. Um, and it was really hard to know who to sign with. In the end, I ended up signing with Jimmy because one, you know, he's an impressive guy who's done some amazing stuff, but he spent the most time, you know, they all kind of promised the world, but he spent the most time with me before signing the deal. As I said, you know, had me over to his home, had me down, uh, in, um, uh, uh, to see the uh, fight at his house in, in Palm Springs, took me to see the Stones, which that was a whole amazing thing. Um, and in a fight at his house? Uh, well, on TV, like a big, oh, okay. like a heavy, heavyweight <laughs> champion fight kind of thing. Um, but just, you know, he was treating me like a friend. And, 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 he, and I remember the night before I ultimately signed. Well, actually, I, I don't know that it was a night. I, I was going back to New York for one more round of meetings. And he said, you know, dude, you got to make up your mind here. It's been like a week and a half. You got you to gotta sign with somebody. What, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I just want to know that whoever I sign with isn't going to drop me if the first album doesn't sell. And, and he said, now, see, this is, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this is something I can, I can answer. Um, he said, you, I was talking to my wife about you today. I think you're a career artist and no matter what happens, uh, you know, I, on that first album, I, I think, I think you got something special and, and we are definitely not gonna, you know, it's not going to be about the first album. It's about the career. And so I went to New York, I took another round of meetings and, uh, on that plane flight coming home, I picked up the phone. I never, and since I've never used a phone on an airplane, I think it was like $7 a minute or something like that. And, uh, and called him and, and just said, Hey, I want to sign with you. Let's do it. And, and I signed, I signed with Interscope and it was literally the, the, a dream come true. So there's, there's, there's more there. There's many more details and subplots and things like that, but that's the, the basic arc like what what am i leaving out or what are you th wondering about as i tell the story well let's let's talk about the show that you played ah. uh as you started to get offers and then and let's talk about the hustle that you put into it that kind of set that up right so so during this time while while it's on the radio and while the offers are coming in oh actually no let me let me back up an offer i think had come in and there was definitely a lot of interest but the flood of offers had not come in um and i had booked a show cuz we were planning on shopping um the album in the beginning of the year around the time the demo deal was coming to a head um um, the demo deal with capital that is I had booked a show at the dragonfly. And again, I uh, always not wanting to get, I don't know, maybe I'm just a control freak, but not wanting to get lost in the shuffle of another acoustic artist. I almost never played other people's shows. I did do a few, but I, I always was the promoter. Whenever I played, I made a lot more money. I could control the circumstances. I could give myself the best spot. I could put as many people on the guest list as I wanted. So rather than saying, Hey, can I have a gig at your venue, I'd say, Hey, I'm a promoter. Can I have a night at your venue? And I'd take on all the risk. Um, but I never lost money doing it. 
and I would, <clears throat> I would, again, I, I'd bring in my own sound, I'd do everything and, and I'd have access to that big guest list, which another promoter would never have given me. Um, so, and I, as I said, I put two years into Hollywood and I had a lot of favors and there, but, but the show had already been booked. And so suddenly it's coming up and like, look, do we want to do a big gig right in the middle of this bidding war? Because if it doesn't go well, I could, I could destroy everything. All that confidence could just, you know, the air could be let out of the, the bag, so to speak. Uh, is that the right metaphor? The air come out of the tires? I think that's what I'm looking Sales? at. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Or some wind out of sail? I don't know. Sure. I could lose all that momentum and it could all end. I could, I could totally screw it up. But um, with the encouragement of my manager and my own sort of arrogance at the time, we decided, screw it. I'm good. I can do this. Let's do the show. And and I had, remember remember how I said I had this huge phone I am, I really quickly realized the power of just making phone calls as a club promoter. Whenever I had a night, I sat there for a day or two or however long it took and I called every single phone number in my phone book and people came, you know, some, a percentage of those people came. So I, I made it my mission during those two years prior to the record deal while I was in Hollywood to just every night I went out, every time I spoke to someone, I quickly kind of, you know, at some point in that meeting uh, or that conversation, you're saying, you're explaining who you are and what you do. And I'd say, oh, you know what? Give me your um, phone number. I'll call you next time I have a show. I'll put you on the, on the guest list. And I had this huge thing. So when I, I got to the point where I couldn't even call all the people myself for the average gig, I'd hire people to make phone calls for me. And it would take about four days to just sit there and call everyone and read a script. And, and, uh, this was more as a club promoter. So when it came time to do this show, I, of course, made these phone calls myself and I sat there and it took me four days. I'd start at 10 a.m. and I'd call until 6 p.m. So eight hours a day of phone calls, just saying the same thing over and over again um, while I'm in the studio, while the, this record deal is heating up and I packed that place. So I don't know what legal capacity is in Dragonfly. It's probably about 350, 375. And there was just a line around the block. I mean, record labels could not get in. It was insane. I remember there was a table. I'm, and oh, I can't, I'm actually forgetting some of the names, but just like one of the tables had Jimmy Iovine and Tom Wally and, you know, both uh, heads of Interscope, Rick Rubin, um, maybe Glenn Ballard was at that. T I don't know. It was, it was a, 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 like a, there were tables full of legends. These, these, these guys were heroes to me, the, the A&R reps and presidents of these companies. I had been fixated on, on them for years. Um, and, and half of them aren't even getting into the show cause it sold out. And, you know, the impression was, was, was quite, quite a sight, you know, and it pissed some people off, but I think in, a, in ultimately a good way when a record label can't get into a show to see the artist they want to sign, it certainly sends a message. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, and, and I was, I was pretty into, again, because of popism, I had embraced a bit of showmanship. Um, and I had a backup singer and a cute outfit and I had, um, confetti cannons and I had a giant American flag behind me, frankly, before Ryan Adams or Lenny Kravitz did, <laughs> did the same thing. And you know, we're talking giant, like, I don't know, 20 feet, you know, like huge, massive American flag. And, and I, we went to, 
uh, this place. I don't know what it's actually called. Everyone called it Mariachi Plaza and picked up a, a actual just street mariachi band. They didn't speak English. And I remember, you know, we rehearsed them up on a, on a song in the alley before the show. Um, and we, so we had a mariachi band come up and it was, it was for a, an unsigned, local act effectively it was it was quite a big show and as the confetti cannons are going off i'm and the record labels are there i'm spray painting john ojaka was here on the american flag which is potentially a bit sacrilegious <laughs> and and it was it was a lot of, it was spectacle and it was it was it was just just a freaking night and and the show went ultimately well you know the music was good and there were no major screw-ups and and everything worked and the next day the phones blew up and and the the you know the offers started really pouring in and and that's when things kind of went nuclear in terms of the amount of money we were ultimately will able to get it was my manager's job at that point to just leverage one offer against another so you know somebody offers 200,000 so you go to the next guy and say we've got 200,000 and they offer 300,000 and you go to the next guy and so forth um and actually as part of my deal i also got built into the contract uh, a record label uh, i had to wait 1 year from the release of my album to execute that aspect of the contract but they were going to give me i think it was $250,000 to um, start start my own record label, but um, ultimately, as we'll get into, that never happened. Um, but the interesting part of that and how it relates to uh, all of us here in the MMM audience is, is that so directly foreshadowed what I ultimately ended up doing as a marketer and, and more specifically as a music marketer. So as we all know now, it's all about email addresses and and doing virtually the same thing that I was doing with those phone calls. So I'd go and I amassed an audience. I'd call them all with a, an incentivized offer. In other words, they, they could get on the guest list. They didn't know I had an unlimited guest list, <laughs> yeah, but uh, and I didn't say. But I said, "Hey, I can put you on the guest list, but you got to let me know, um, uh, you know, as soon as possible." And and people would get on the guest list, and and not all of them would come, but the you know a huge percentage of them would, and that that is exactly what I now do with email. It's much easier now and more automated. Um, but I go out and attract an audience and then send them all incentivized offers. You know, it's, it's really the same exact principles. Um, and, and it took me a surprising amount of time to figure out that I should be doing the exact same thing <laughs> with online marketing, but ultimately I got there. Um, so what, what else did you ask about? Uh, just about the hustle leading up to, you know, that show and, and how it set the table for it. So I think, uh, I think we covered it. Yeah. I think, I think if there's anything to add to that, I, and if it's not too obnoxious to say it, I really felt that I was one of the hardest working guys that I, I knew there were others certainly out there that, that worked equally hard, but that was a big part of it as well. Just busting ass. I don't, I don't, I don't believe in, um, you know, karma in the literal sense, like there's some divine justice in the world. But I, I do believe in the quantum physics aspects of, of, of the, uh, impact that focusing attention ultimately has on reality. Um, and, and I believe that most of my successes in life have been a result of that, just pure obsession and relentlessness and just, a tenacious focus on making something happen. And when the universe doesn't help 
you know, when a, when a roadblock or an obstacle or a wall is thrown in front of you, um, it's the only, there's this sort of obsessive absolute refusal to accept that and just a perseverance in the face of that, that does seem to get rewarded. I'll give you an example. I had it in my head. So I had, I had started, you know, as a promoter, I, I would help other bands and I, I felt that I had helped a few other bands, um, get record deals and things like that. And I remember being that, going back to that point, that Christmas where I was feeling low and being like, why, why can't I make this happen? Like I'm helping literally other people get record deals and can't do it for myself. And, and, um, I got it in my head after watching a friend go through a bidding war situation that if I was going to make this happen, it just, it wasn't going to be easy for me. I wasn't going to just land a bidding war situation because I was so amazing. I was going to, I was going to have to make it happen. I was going to have to get on the radio, um, in order to, I was going to have to show the, the industry that I was, I was worth dealing with. So, um, I sat there and I made it my mission for, it was about a week, I think. I called every single person in that phone, that 1000 person phone, phone book, or at least everyone that I knew even remotely well, um, and said, Hey, look, I'm trying to get my stuff on the radio. I'm convinced that this is what it's going to take to get my career where I ultimately want it to be. Do you know anyone in radio on any level? Or do you know anyone who knows anyone, um, uh, on radio on any level. And many people said, yeah, I know a guy who knows a guy and I would start getting, and I'd get their name and number and ask them if they'd make an intro call and let them know that I was going to call. And I, I got, I finally got, uh, someone, he, he was an industry friend. He worked with my manager's office at the time and he knew a DJ at one of the smaller LA stations. Um, and when I say smaller, it wasn't small. It was like the, I can't even remember the the number, uh, the, the call numbers, but it was, it was, um, like the second biggest rock station in LA and he called them and the guy said, sure, I'll spin it. And he spun it one night at 1130 on a Sunday or whatever it was. And it even got phones. Um, but I, I worked really hard to make that happen. Like that was, it was a week of calling a lot of people and really putting myself out there and frankly begging a bit. And I got, and I made it happen. It got on the radio and it got, people called in and said they loved the song. This is the same song that ultimately, you know, it was Bisexual Chick, but that didn't lead to the success. That didn't then just keep on spreading and blowing up into what it ultimately became. Um, but then weirdly, three months later, the exact same scenario happened with no apparent help of, of mine. Um, but it lined up perfectly with the vision that I had. So I, there was this weird thing. And again, this has happened over and over and over in my life where if I do the work, the universe seems to reward it. And uh, with, with the results that I'm ultimately after, sometimes it doesn't look exactly like I expect it to look. Um, but I've never had that kind of effort and that kind of hard work, not be rewarded. So I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the physics of all of that is. And I do believe it's physics more than spirituality or, or maybe, you know, maybe, maybe they're, maybe they're one in the same. Um, but there is something to that. And I don't see that a lot from people, um, that, that level of tenacious, I'm not accepting no for an answer, but when you do see it, I think it tends to get rewarded. So I don't, I don't know. 
I don't know if it's obnoxious me attributing that to myself, but I think it's I think it's an important quality. And as a club promoter, as someone who was out there dealing, you know, with every musician in town who wanted a gig, there really was a lack of work work effort, you know, uh, work work ethic. Sorry, if that's the word I'm looking for. Um, like I mean. I can count on one hand the number of times someone came down to a venue to shake my hand and say, hey, I'd really love a gig. People would mail you CDs but they and, and with a cover letter, but very few people ever put in the energy. And when they did, I always gave them a gig. Um, so I don't I don't know. There's, you know, the, the, the work ethic. I've never been a person who's who's been naturally talented. Um, I work harder that, than the next guy. And that usually pays off it always pays off actually i don't know and and all of and and that all that's what led to the record deal that's what led to that night at the dragonfly where there was a line around the block and record label execs couldn't get into the show it was it was the culmination of of all of that effort um yeah all right well so you got the record deal at this point so what happened after that well, I could answer that, um, but but you know we we promised in the last uh, in the last or I think it was two episodes ago that this new this new wave of of MMM podcast was not going to be you know su- ultra long format that we were gonna we were gonna kind of keep these a little bit more uh, bite sized chunks and you know this this certainly has probably been one of the heftier ones but I don't think there is really another way to do this but I think Scott it, it, you tell me what you think I think we should break this up into two parts and leave it leave this one with a bit of a cliffhanger there um, so I've got I I land this massive bidding war record deal said to be one of the biggest new artists signings in history um but you know what i'm not a household name so so something happened and i think i think we should save that for another episode that'll be part two and we'll talk about uh coming back down that mountain if that if that sounds good to you all right let's do it all right so thanks everyone for listening uh we'll be back uh Hopefully next week, sometime soon, with another episode where we go into part two of this story, the uh, the other side of the coin, uh, the the coming coming down the mountain of that big record deal. Uh, um, uh, but until then, once again, just want to remind everyone: if you're interested in the new agency that I've started again, that's DTFI Direct to Fan International. Shoot an email on over to uh, John at MusicMarketingManifesto.com. Again, we'll be taking on. 10 clients we've had a few beta clients in in the in the stable so to speak but this is going to be our opening round of initial clients but we are only taking on 10 so uh, if you're interested in being one of those 10 then get in touch Uh, we expect to fill that roster fairly quickly and uh, if you enjoy this podcast and hopefully you did hopefully this divergence into a little bit of a little bit of my story isn't too uh, too obnoxious or, or boring, <laughs> but uh, if you enjoyed it, head on over to iTunes or Stitcher. Leave a rating and review. Those things really help. Uh, we'll, we'll greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Scott, for being here. Thanks for helping helping make this all happen, and thanks for encouraging me to to you know tell the story. I'm I'm glad it will now exist out there in in the ether. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for telling the story. All right. Until next time. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to the Music Marketing Manifesto podcast. If you'd like to learn more about how you can market your music using the direct-to-fan strategies discussed on this show, then head on over to musicmarketingmanifesto.com and sign up for your free copy of the Music Marketing Blueprint. Once again, that's musicmarketingmanifesto.com.